The sermon text this morning is Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach yourselves, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you, who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. It's good to be with you all this morning. Um, I've titled this sermon, Obeying the Law Requires a Circumcised Heart, and I hope by the end of it, you'll see why. Uh, so as we look at this text, I think you have something uh, in the background here in Romans two seventeen through 29. Uh, throughout redemptive history, the story of the Bible, um, you see one pretty clear thing. Uh, the Jews could not keep the law given to Moses. They disobey God time and time again. And because of that, um, the, the, um, God was blasphemed uh, among the Gentiles. The purpose of keeping the law was so that, yes, they would obey their God, but also that the nations would come to worship the one true God. They failed at that. But as they failed at that and they were sent into exile, the law and the prophets, which we'll look at here in a second, they look forward to the day when God would send his spirit to circumcise his people's hearts, that they might do what they could never do before, which is obey him from the heart. Not because they had to, as if doing something would make them right with God, but because they wanted to. Their hearts were now circumcised by the Spirit. They had new fleshly hearts molded to now want to worship God rather than having to worship God. The law and the prophets all look forward to that day, which now Paul brings together in his passage here in Romans 2, 17 through 29. This law of obedience would come not because they wanted to, but out of an overflow of their genuine faith in their saving God. But before launching into this text, I want to make one clear statement. I know exactly what the text addresses. The Jews' inability to keep the law and their hypocrisy. That's clear. I'm aware of that. I hope we're all aware of that. And if not, hopefully you will be at the end of this text. Um, But I do want to do one thing that also other preachers like John Piper, for example, does. I want to give us a very sober warning about this text. Um, This text is what it is, but we shouldn't use this text 
to disparage Jews. This should not be a cause for anti-Semitism. If you think of figures throughout church history like Marcion, for example, who took anything out of the Bible that sounded remotely Jewish, or even uh, some of the things Luther said later on in his life, or just 19th and 20th century Christian scholarship uh, altogether, which had a decidedly anti-Jewish bent. Uh, You can think of, for example, um, Gerhard Kittel. If you're a seminarian or if you use Bible dictionaries, he he wrote and edited something called the... um, it's a, an exegetical dictionary of the Greek New Testament. It's called TDNT, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Gerhard Kittel was a German and also an avid supporter of the Nazis. In fact, you can still find his works on most seminarian shelves and professor's shelves today. But it was just in the air of Christian scholarship uh, to be anti-Jewish. And honestly, uh, most of us have breathed this air uh, and things we've read unconsciously uh, most like of an, uh, most like, and honestly, uh, some of this scholarship is a little more uh, openly foul than others, but it 's still in the air, and I want to make us aware of it and i don 't want us to make the same mistake as we now look at this text. Paul is not disparaging Jews. this is no ethnic slur in the context of Romans one through three. Paul is showing one very clear thing: all are condemned. And all need saving faith that only comes through Jesus Christ. His righteousness alone that comes through faith in him. All are under sin and all need Christ. So what Paul is now doing in this passage we will cover today, he's trying to wake up the Jews from their slumber to their need for the gospel so that they might be redeemed, washed, and cleansed by the saving blood of of Christ, just like everyone else. What we need, the Jews also need, and Paul is now waking them up to their slumber. Listen to Romans 10, 1 through 3. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them, that is the Jews, is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. Now, these are not the words of someone who disparages his own people. These are someone who longs for the eyes of his people, the Jews, to be opened to the gospel. It's an idea that bleeds throughout much of Romans. And as we look now in Romans 2, 17 through 29... Paul is telling his Jewish brethren to wake up to what he was woken up to on that road to Damascus. That you cannot rely on the law to spare you from judgment. Because you can't keep it. You can't keep all of it. You can't keep every jot and tittle, which is what the law requires. And thus, you, like everyone else, are condemned. What you need, then, is not more law observance. What you need is a circumcised heart by the Spirit, a heart of flesh. This is what the prophets and also the law look forward to. This is what Paul says is now a reality. This is now the new covenant sign of membership in God's people, not external circumcision, circumcision, uh, circumcision of the heart and by the Spirit. And one thing you'll also see me do throughout this passage is reiterate that the need for spiritual circumcision is not just for 
the Jews. It's for all of us, Jew and Gentile, through faith in only one person, Jesus the Messiah. So there should be no arrogance, no boasting, no gloating on our part, Gentiles who have come to faith in Jesus the Christ. This is pretty clear, I think, as Paul addresses Gentiles in Romans eleven seventeen through 21. Listen to what he says. He says, If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, through a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, Branches are broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. In other words, don't be arrogant because we, it's most of us here, um, Gentiles, are beneficiaries of the sap. That is, the salvific promises that flow from the tree that is Israel. Promises made to people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and all the rest in the Old Testament. But instead, we should tremble at God's mercy. For once, we were strangers to the commonwealth of Israel and have now been brought near through the blood of Christ. So we should not be arrogant, but we should praise God for his very good mercy to us. So as we now begin to dive into this text, as we look now at Romans 2, 17 through 29, in verses 17 through 24, Paul builds his argument by first arguing that the Jews have confidence, false confidence, all right, to save them from the day of judgment because they have the law. You see this clearly in verses 17 through 20. This is the very same day of reckoning that we discussed in verse 216. Um, The law, however, was to be a guide to the Jews. By keeping it, they would honor Yahweh, their God, the one true God, and draw other nations to the worship of the one true God. It was not supposed to be a marker of division or pride, and certainly not something they were supposed to rest their trust in. Their hope, like our hope, was always and is always supposed to be in the saving God, the one true God. And their obedience to the law was evidence of this hope, but was not to replace their evidence, was not to replace their saving faith in Yahweh, the God who had delivered them from Egypt and whom they were supposed to rest in for their salvation. Their hope was always to be in God. And now Paul begins this section with some distinguishing marks some of the very identifiable privileges the Jews would claim. All right, He's going to rattle them off one by one by one. He's going to point out one to really sharpen his argument and key in on this one so-called privilege, this false sense of privilege to really build his argument and drive the Jews towards what they need, which is circumcision not of the flesh, but by the Spirit, enabling them now to do the one thing they could never do, which is obey God. He now begins to rattle rattle these off in verses 17 and 18. He says, they call themselves Jews. That is, they enjoyed a special status as God's covenant people, set apart from all others. And this is certainly true. 
They had God's revelation, the Bible. To them were given the law, the covenant, the promises. There's nothing wrong with this. This is right. All right? The second what now? They rely upon the law. Simply stated, they believe that their possession of the law meant there would be no judgment for them. But it would for everyone else who didn't have the law. So it's very convenient. Um, but Paul's going to show them in this passage, this is a false confidence. The law could never save them. For as it says in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is the one main negative that Paul points out in this list of privileges that he begins this text with. The next one here is they boasted in God. There's not a bad thing. They serve the true God. Paul also boasts in this one true God. This kind of boasting is not necessarily wrong. Then Paul says that they know his will and they approve what is excellent. Being what? Instructed by the law, this is true. They know God's will. They approve what is excellent based upon the law. These are not bad things. These are genuine privileges that the Jew possesses. However, there's one thing in this list that Paul will now hone in on, and it's their reliance on the law to deliver them from judgment. Okay, This is sourced in one of these main distinctives that Paul just mentioned, getting now to the heart of his argument. They have the law. It's theirs. It's given to them. But rather than now self-reflect on the law, seeing their own sin, their own condemnation, they now take that mirror that is the law and they point it at others, showing them their sin and their darkness, but never seeing their own transgression, their own condemnation. Yes, the law was supposed to point out sin and drive you to a savior. But instead of self-reflecting on that law and saying their need for that Savior, they simply took that mirror now and pointed it at others, revealing their sin, their transgression, their need for truth, but never pointing it at themselves. You see a list of this, of what they did, in verses 19 through 20 in this text. I'm just going to read this once again with you. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. All right, Paul rattles off a bunch of things the Jews do. And again, these things aren't necessarily bad, but the point is they never take this and point it at themselves, which we're about to look at in just one second. They are a guide of the blind. This is not a bad thing necessarily. Uh, Isaiah 42, 7 says, Israel's called to open the eyes of the blind. Those who do not see the truth, this saving truth only found in the one saving God that the Jews are supposed to worship. Uh, They're supposed to be a light to those in darkness, right? Isaiah 42, 6, Israel is supposed to be a light to the nations. They are supposed to be evangelistic, right? Through their obedience uh, to the law, the nations are supposed to come in, worship Yahweh. This is not a bad thing. They're an instructor of the foolish, that is, who those who don't want to hear the truth or know the truth. They're supposed to instruct these people, and also they're supposed to, and they are teacher of teachers of children, okay? Those who need to hear the truth and be guided in instruction. This is not a bad thing, okay? These things are sourced in what Jews were supposed to do. But however, 
do they now take these things, the law, this mirror, and point it back at themselves? Okay? Again, I don't think Paul would object to the Jews or any of us doing what's found here in these words in verses 19 through 20. We're all called to share with those who can't see the truth, those who are blind, be a light to those who are sitting in the darkness of their sin. Teach those who don't understand or don't want to hear who God is, the foolish. The problem now comes, as we're going to see, when Paul moves from what they do, externals, to now internals. Do you keep the very law that you teach? Do you practice what you preach? Look at what Paul's going to do now in verses 21 through 24. Paul's going to do something very uncomfortable. He's going to take that mirror, the law, which they pointed others, and he's now going to point it back at them, showing them their sin, their transgression, and their need for spiritual circumcision, which we'll talk about here in one second. I'm going to reread these verses um, just to hopefully make a point. Once again, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now as we look at these things like not, do not teach yourself, um, specifically um, stealing, committing adultery, and robbing temples. Now, scholars are all over the place uh, about this. If you read commentaries, you'll read one interpretation versus another interpretation. Did they all steal? Did they all commit adultery? Did they all rob temples? Uh, I'm going to say the idea there is, no, they all didn't steal. They all didn't commit adultery necessarily, and they all didn't rob temples necessarily. Some did do these things. Some didn't in any combination of these things. But not all the Jews did all these things. The point here in in listing these things, I think, is giving an example of the things that some Jews did. Not all to accentuate his main point, which is that the Jews did not keep the very law that they taught to others. And this is hypocrisy. They fell short of what they taught to others, the law. And thus, they were hypocrites. Thus, their confidence in the law is what? Unsubstantiated. There is no room for boasting in the law. It cannot save them. It cannot deliver them from God's judgment. They too are condemned, and they are under the same judgment that they believe the Gentiles to be under. Paul's doing something very uncomfortable, right? And it'd be uncomfortable for us as well as we now take that mirror, we point it back at ourselves. But in regard to the Jew, he's exposing their sin and their condemnation pointing that mirror that is the law right back at them. What he's essentially saying is this. You are those who are blind. You are those living in darkness. You are those who are foolish and need to be instructed. You are those who need to be taught. You are those children who need to be guided and taught and led to saving faith in your saving God. Paul goes so far as to show them That their hypocrisy leads to God being dishonored among the Gentiles. The nations around them to whom they were supposed to be a light, drawing them to the worship of the one true God. But I think what Paul does 
we can't just leave it in the realm of the Jew in this text, okay? Because we have to also take this mirror that is the law and point it right back at ourselves. Now, I know some of us here are Sunday school teachers, we're care group leaders, we're pastors, or have some kind of ministry to men, women, whether teaching, whether counseling, whatever it might be. Just like the Jews had the Bible, right? and they used it, the Old Testament, to teach, preach, etc. And some of us are seminarians, wanting a ministry position at a church or in the academy one day. Those of us who teach or preach or counsel or disciple our children, do we teach or preach to ourselves? When we teach about not having idols, is there something else in our lives, like a husband, a wife, a job, that we seek to find our worth and satisfaction in, replacing the satisfaction and worth we're supposed to find in God? It could even be our children. Easy temptation. When we teach others not to murder, do we become angry at others? Matthew 5 says the person who is angry in his heart is under equal condemnation as the one who has committed murder. When we teach others not to commit adultery, do we lust after someone else's husband, or wife, or anyone else? Jesus says such a person has already committed adultery in his heart. I keep going. There's no need to keep going. We've all seen pastors or ministry leaders who have brought shame to the name of Christ for falling into sin. We've all seen it happen. Question is, are we doing the same? Perhaps a little more difficult, if not publicly, if the people that we teach were able to peer into our souls, would they see idolatry? Would they see murder? Would they see lust in our own hearts? But I don't think this is just for teachers or preachers or parents trying to disciple their children. I think the need to take this mirror and point it really is for all of us. I think if we just take these very few things that I just mentioned that come right from the Ten Commandments, I think we realize that we all fall short. We have violated one of these precepts. Thereby, just like the Jew who could not keep the law, we too are condemned. All of us. No one is righteous, not one. No amount of good deeds, education, or giving to charities or socioeconomic status can deliver us because we've all violated the law's demands. It seems kind of hopeless, uh, but it's not. Uh, things get better. Um, hopefully, I'll show you now in this text. Paul will now show us clearly that the Jew, along with everyone else, necessitates a procedure known as heart circumcision by the surgeon known as the Holy Spirit in order for us to have new fleshly hearts molded and shaped to love God and serve him, not because we have to, but because we want to. But apart from such a procedure which comes through Saving faith in Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. There's only condemnation. And one thing, as evangelicals, we've often done is separate obedience from salvation. 
But I want to show you the Old Testament always expected obedience as a product of those who had been given a new heart, who had undergone spiritual circumcision. Not a prerequisite for salvation, but a natural outflow of their saving faith in the one true God. So now in verses 25 through 29, Paul will now address this issue of circumcision. And some of you may think, okay, what's the point of circumcision in this passage? What does circumcision have to do with anything? Well, under the old covenant, circumcision was an external sign that Jews were God's covenant people who possessed the law given to Moses. In view of this, many would have supposed that circumcision was an external sign that they were spared from God's wrath. But as Paul will show, this is a false belief and a false confidence. So now as we continue in verse 25, Paul continues to sharpen the knife of his argument, contending that circumcision is only profitable if you keep the whole law. And Paul's already shown to the Jews as well as us, no one does this. No one keeps the whole law. We all fall short and thus we're condemned and under God's wrath. They, the Jews, just like the Gentiles, are thus condemned and under God's righteous judgment for not keeping the law. Now in verse 26, Paul will now go on to show that the uncircumcised person, the Gentile, who keeps the law is actually the one who is to be regarded as circumcised in God's sight. The one who keeps the law is the one who is circumcised. In other words, they are part of God's people who will now be spared from judgment. Interestingly, in verse 27, look what Paul even says. He says, Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. In other words, the one who keeps the law will stand in condemnation of you, the Jew who is circumcised but does not keep the law. This uncircumcised person keeps the law's requirements and he will stand in judgment over you. What's the point here? It's not that the day of judgment Jews will lord it over, I'm sorry, Gentiles will load it, lord it over um, the Jews and, and condemn them. The idea is in the judgment, the, Jew, the Jews' disobedience in light of the Gentiles' obedience will be seen as evidence of their condemnation. Here is this one who is uncircumcised and he has kept the law. And here is you who are circumcised and you don't keep the law. In view of his law obedience, you are now condemned. Thus, physical circumcision means nothing unless one can keep the law, the whole law. Sounds almost like works righteousness, right? Uh, Which seems contrary to what Paul's been saying and is saying throughout Romans. Doesn't the context of Romans 1 through 3 show us that no one can keep the law? We're all condemned under God's judgment. It certainly seems inconsistent with Paul's argument. Doesn't the letter of Romans say that, and the entire Bible for that matter points to this, that you're only saved by faith in Christ, 
his work on the cross and not our own work, this seems to kind of contradict that. The one who is obedient will be spared. And this obedient one is actually uncircumcised. Who are then those who keep the law and are reckoned to be God's people, whom he will save at the last judgment? Paul will now show us, okay? He's going to make it very clear. And he will do so by appealing to what the Old Testament hoped for, a new circumcision. This will be a sign of the new covenant people of God, enabling them to do what those under the old covenant could not do, which is obey God from the heart. And such genuine obedience, which resulted from a spiritual circumcision, was all made possible only through faith in Jesus Christ. Look now at verses 28 through 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God. In other words, the true Jew, a member of God's covenant people who will be spared from wrath, is the one who has a circumcised heart, not with human hands, but by the Spirit. Circumcision of the heart is the new covenant sign of membership in God's people. This is the person who Paul refers to in the previous verses. This is the one who displays his covenant membership through his obedience to God. It doesn't mean his obedience saves him. Obedience is a natural product of the one whose heart has been transformed by the Spirit through faith in Christ. In other words, it's an outward manifestation of an inward reality. Now, this is not something new. In fact, the Old Testament looked forward to this time, this new period, this new era, when the Spirit would do a new work in His people. In fact, if you go all the way back to the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, right there in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, you find a very important verse that looks forward to not only their disobedience, but looks forward to a day when they would have circumcised hearts, and thus they would do what they could never do, which is obey God. Listen to Deuteronomy 36. And the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Now, this is still the law. First five books of the Old Testament. They have not yet gone into the land. They have not yet been exiled from the land. But what does Moses do? He knows it's going to happen. He looks forward to it, but he also looks forward to what? To a day when they would have spiritually circumcised hearts, enabling them to obey. And notice here it says that they will live with this new heart. I think it gets even clearer as to what this new state with a new heart will look like in the future, which Paul sees as a reality now. In verse 8, here in in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, it says, And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. 
What will this new life look like? A life of obedience to Yahweh, their God. And they can now do this, what they couldn't do before, because they now have the Spirit of God. All right, And right here in the law, before they get exiled from the land, it hasn't even happened yet, they haven't gone into the land, um, Moses knows, by God's inspiration, that they are going to disobey and get exiled and look forward to this day when their hearts will be circumcised, enabling them to obey. But not just the law. If you look in the prophets, prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah also look forward to this new day when the Spirit would do a new work in the heart of his people. I'll look at one of these. I'll look at Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. Here in this verse, it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's a heart that's malleable. It can be molded to love and obey God. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What do you see here? This circumcision, this new heart is going to come by way of the Spirit. But look at this one key word. What will the Spirit do? The Spirit will be in you, and and the Spirit will move you to obey God. He will compel you. He will motivate you. He will initiate this obedience, which is not the case before spiritual circumcision. In other words, they will now want to obey God, motivated directed by the power of the Spirit. And this Spirit circumcision to which Paul refers is the fulfillment of what the law and the prophets look forward to. I just gave you a couple of verses. Jeremiah also speaks to this as well. And this spiritual circumcision is now the mark of God's new covenant people. It's not circumcision of the flesh, but of the heart enabling us, his people, to do what we could never do on our own before, which is to obey God. And if you look at the letter to Romans, such a circumcision comes like this, not just Romans, where you can take a look at the entire New Testament, the entire Bible, for that matter. How does this spiritual circumcision come about? Again, take a look at that mirror again. Take a long, hard look at it. I think we all should. Um, We realize one thing when we stare, when we gaze into this mirror And we now examine ourselves in light of it. What do we see? We fall short. None of us can keep the law perfectly. And thus we are guilty and we're condemned before God. And because we're guilty and condemned, we have no hope in and of ourselves, just like the Jew had no hope in and of himself. And our only hope is to look to Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, the one who paid the righteous penalty, took our judgment upon himself on the cross in our place. If one looks to Christ, not the law, because we can never keep it perfectly, one now has the Spirit, has new life, and we now can do what we could never do before, which is to obey God from the heart. Not because we have to, not because we want to do certain things to be right with God, now because we want to because of these new spiritually circumcised hearts that we have. I don't know if you all listen to the radio. Um, There's this one program my girls like. It's called Adventures and Odyssey. Um, 
I listen to these things, and I, I just think, this is kind of corny. But anyway, uh, my wife happened to buy a CD, and I was listening to it begrudgingly in the van um, with my gas station sunglasses, like most every dad. Um, anyway, uh, and, I'm, and I'm listening to this one story, and it's about this boy named Dion. And Dion was just, he was a bad guy in school. He was known for mocking uh, other kids, giving them a hard, hard time, um, just making them feel really bad about themselves. He wasn't known as a good guy. Well, one day Dion just disappears, and they wonder what happened to him. It just so happens that Dion had a sick, weak heart, and they gave him a heart transplant, and they gave him a new heart. Well, when Dion shows, ba- shows back up at school, the kids begin to wonder, What's happened to Dion? He's acting differently. He's nice. He's being encouraging. He's asking for forgiveness. And one little kid says, I know what it is. It has something to do with that new heart that he got. It must be someone else's heart because we know Dion wasn't that way before this, this, uh, this heart transplant. And it wasn't the physical heart that had changed Dion. But what the writers of the story did is they used this story of Dion to talk about what it means to have a new circumcised heart, just like Dion changed when he was given a new heart. Because before, he had a sick, weak heart that produced sick and weak, wicked deeds. These were evidenced both in thoughts and in actions. Just like Dion, we all at once had sick, weak hearts that produced sick, weak, and wicked deeds. But what happened? Upon faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit now came and produced surgery, a spiritual circumcision upon our own hearts. And we who were were once sick, weak, and wicked in our hearts is evidenced by our external actions, both in thoughts and in deeds. We now have new hearts. And with these new spiritual circumcised hearts, we now produce what we can never do before. That is, we now produce loving, obedient deeds to God that are evident to those around us, both our family, our friends, and others around us. Really, what people should say is, there's been a transformation in our hearts, is kind of like what happened with Dion. It's like, is that really him or her? He's different. And that should be the case with the Christian who's been spiritually circumcised. Again, just like with Dion's old life, with his sick, weak, and wicked heart. When he received a new heart, there was a change. With us, it should be the same. When we are spiritually circumcised, the Spirit comes into us and produces in us what we can never do before, which is love and obey God and others. This is the spirit circumcised heart that Ezekiel talks about, that the law talks about, that moves us, that compels us to love and obey God. We're not talking about law here. Not that we have to. It's because we now want to with our new hearts that God has given us. Now, what are some examples of the way this might play out in our lives? Here are just a few. It's not that I have to pray. It's that I want to pray. I can't help but want to come before the presence of God and approach him in prayer. I am driven, I am motivated to 
through this new spiritual circumcision by faith in Jesus. It's not that I have to read the Bible. It's because I want to read the Bible. I can't wait to open up its pages and be utterly transformed by all that it says. It's not that I want to go to church on Sundays as if checking off this box makes us any more endeared to God as if we didn't go. It's that I want to go. I want to hear the word. I want to be with other believers. I want to serve my church. I want to inconvenience myself. I want to go into the nursery and be with those children who may or may not give me the flu or stomach bug, okay? (laughs) Because we are now so compelled by the Holy Spirit. It's not that I want to care for orphans. Not that I have to care for orphans and widows or speak out for the oppressed. I now want to do these things. I'm compelled by the Spirit, the Spirit who now moves us to work for justice for these people. And justice is a biblical principle. I know our life ebbs and flows, and sometimes we want to do these things more than at other times. I get it. But the general pattern of your life, um, in view of these, yes, ups and downs you go through, should be one of desired obedience over time if you look at this pattern in your life. Because indeed, the Christian has been saved by grace through faith. This is, there's no question about this. Works do not save us in no way. But the Christian, through faith, the salvation that only comes through faith, has been given a new heart by the Spirit, motivating us now to do what we didn't want to do before, which is love and obey God from the heart. Not because we have to, but because we want to. We want to love God. We want to serve others. What we didn't want to do before, at least not willingly. What I will say is if you don't see this general pattern of love for God and wanting to love him and obey him and serve him, again, keep those ups and downs in mind. They happen. They do. But if you don't see this pattern over time in your life of a spiritually circumcised heart who wants to love and obey God and serve him, I think we should call to mind 2 Corinthians 13. That is, we need to examine ourselves to see if we are truly in the faith. I think Luther says it best when he says, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's evidence. The one who belongs to God, yes, will be spared of judgment. This one who has been spiritually circumcised by faith, and now you see his loving obedience to God manifested in his life. This indeed is the one who will be saved from judgment, spared on that day when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. In view of this passage, I think as we now begin to to wrap things up, we can see clearly that no human being can rely on his or her obedience to the law to save them, to deliver them from God's righteous judgment. Because what does the law do? The law only shows us that we fall short of the perfection it requires, both externally and internally in our minds, our hearts, and our thoughts, leaving us condemned before a just God. What the law does do is the right use of the law. That is, it functions like a mirror, exposing our sin and driving us, propelling us to our need for a Savior, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for our transgression of the law on the cross in our place 
for our sins as our substitute that we might now be delivered, saved. And we can now live a life in which we love God and obey others, not because we have to, because we are now God's spiritually circumcised people who want to love him and obey him from the heart. Maybe you're here today and you've never heard this message. This whole spiritual circumcision just sounds weird. Um, Maybe you rely on the advancement in your job. You want to climb the rank, the ranks of your job, your position, or your station in life, that you really haven't committed any big sins like murder, theft, or Facebook trolling. I think if you examine yourself in light of the law, just the very few things that I've mentioned here today, I think you will see that you are clearly just like all of us here condemned. And your only hope in view of your condemnation, our condemnation, is to look to Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for our transgression of the law. Again, dying in our place, taking the wrath of God that we deserved and rising from the grave. If you look to Christ and his work and not your own, you will have a new heart, a new heart not of stone, but one of flesh. One of flesh that's molded and can be shaped to love and obey God. And you won't do so because you feel you have to, to climb some kind of ladder to heaven or to a right relationship with God. You will now do so because you want to. So this is my prayer for you today, that you might look to Christ and not to the law, because the law reveals your sin. But Jesus is your only hope of salvation. So Look to Christ, and through Christ, we have hope of eternal life and the hope that we will live a life of loving obedience to God for as long as we shall live, and that's forever. Let's pray.